66 million years ago. There are no cities, no buildings, no humans. It is an age of monsters. An age that lasted, we are told, hundreds of times longer than the entire history of the human species. We've only been around for 300,000 years, whereas dinosaurs were thought to have existed for over 150 million years. And their time on Earth is just a speck when compared to other things. Trees are said to have been around 385 million years. Sharks, 440 million years. Jellyfish, nearly 700 million years. The first life forms, 4.3 billion years. And the universe itself, 13.8 billion years. This is the story of evolution. Against such a backdrop of endless time and eons of suffering, it's easy to feel insignificant. As if humanity is just a blip on the radar. But what if that's not the case? What if evolution isn't a random struggle for survival, but deep within it, there lies a message of purpose, of the divine. What if, far from shattering our belief in God, evolution was actually evidence for it? Would that change how we see all history? A long, steady march towards us? Today we ask, Who's afraid of evolution? episode of Spiritually Incorrect. On this week's episode, we have Intelligently Designed Evolution, Genesis Wars, and Darwin's Evangelical Advocates. I'm your host, Seth Hart. Joined with me is Jonathan Lionheart. Howdy. John, when you were growing up in school, did they, did you even ever hear about like intelligent design or creationism at all? No, I grew up in Canada, far away even land. From, from the squabbles of the American South and Midwest over intelligent design and croc ducks and all of these other things. Croc ducks? I, I, I did not even know there was a debate, even amidst Christians. I didn't even know Christians debated evolution until I moved to the States when I was like 18 or 19. What are croc ducks? Are these like something that like Bigfoot's pet or something? Croc ducks are the rare mid-transition fossil that, you know, uh, creationists used to say, if there's a transition in the fossil record between, you know, like a crocodile and a duck, what we need is a transitionary figure like a croc duck, part crocodile, part duck. 
that helps. I don't feel like they said this. I don't feel like any major figure I think, was no, talking I think about it's, Crockett. I think it's probably a caricature of their position from the outside. But still, the croc duck. I'm looking for the croc duck. If we discover a, a part crocodile, part duck, that, that'll convince some creationists. We so. need to do an episode on where is the croc duck. I mean, we're already doing weird enough stuff now. Where is the croc duck now? This at five. <laughs> We'll have to make that like a Patreon exclusive or something like that. You have to pay us to get that a solid, the amazing special. content. We don't give croc duck to just anyone, <laughs> Seth. No, well, it's got, I just finished uploading some stuff to our Patreon, actually. I just uploaded an unaired episode that is exclusive for people on Patreon. So if you want to get access to that episode, join our Patreon. We don't talk about the Patreon enough, but we really, really need to start pitching that. We need to be better at self-promoting. We need to be all about ourselves. Hey, us, notice us. Give us money for existing. Well, we really do. I mean, it just takes a lot of time and effort. A like and a subscribe really, really help. But if for anyone who's really, really likes our podcast, going forward, Patreon support is going to ensure that the quality is going to continue at this level. So, for sure. And uh, yeah. our Patreon supporters get access to unaired episodes, unaired segments of episodes that we didn't end up using. They also get different kinds of free merchandise, shirts, mugs, t-shirts, stickers. They even get the ability to suggest an episode that me and Seth would then use. So if you have a topic that you're like, oh, I wish they would do this topic. If you become a Patreon member at the right tier, you can actually suggest topics to us and we'll do one of them. Or you can also get an hour-long personal interview with Seth and I if you join our Patreon at a certain tier. So there's a lot of cool stuff in there if you're, if you're a fan. You think by suggesting an episode to us that this would be like a favor we do to you? No, no, you're doing a favor to us. We We're run out, out of, of ideas. ideas. <laughs> We're going to do Croc Duck. We're at Croc Duck point, people. Help us. <laughs> so here to work our way through why croc duck is a real creature is zachary ardern zachary ardern is a evolutionary biologist who's doing his postdoc at cambridge and we're excited to have him on to talk about evolution and its relationship with christianity yeah i've actually known zachary for quite a while now and his work on basically bringing together evolution and design arguments two things that you think are usually opposed to one another you normally think of design arguments as something that's something beholden to the intelligent design movement. But no, no, no. Zachary Ardern says evolution itself, biological evolution also has its own argument that you can form for design. And that's pretty cool. And so immediately when we started up this podcast, it's like we got to get him on. So right in the heart of this origin series. Yeah. And if you grew up in a small town and your only exposure to evolution was seeing Squirtle evolve into War Turtle, this is just a session to give you a broader access to what other people are saying and to just kind of hear different perspectives. I feel like you need to hear a different perspective between Croc Duck and War Turtle. Uh, I think my entire worldview doesn't need to exist anywhere else outside of Pokemon and Croc Ducks and the ridiculous Seth. I'm quite content where I am. We're joined today by Zachary Ardern. How are you today? Yeah, I'm doing well. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So first off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your own journey with the subject of evolution and your own Christian faith? I'm a researcher in molecular evolution uh, based in Cambridge at the Sanger Institute. And in order to get here, I've been thinking about evolution, I guess, for the last 10 years, uh, about 
little over 10 years ago, I started my master's thesis in that's when I started really properly researching evolution, though I had been thinking about it for a few years before that and uh, doing that in relation to my faith as well. So one reason that I'm really interested in kind of fundamental evolutionary theory is because I'm interested in what relationship it might have to God and creation and a lot of the kind of typical questions that, that Christians will have about, about science and, and faith. I probably started fairly antagonistic to evolution as an undergrad and had that kind of reinforced by some biology professors who were super atheistic and kind of used evolution as a club to kind of bash Christians with effectively and, and kind of not just creationism, though that was a big part of it, but kind of used it as a general kind of point against a religion or, or Christianity in general. And that actually kind of ironically actually pushed me back towards being less sympathetic to evolution than I, than I would have been going into the classes. So that had the opposite effect of maybe what they wanted. Or maybe they just wanted to bash Christianity, in which case I guess it achieved what they wanted. But, but it also kind of forced me or pushed me to, more into apologetics, which probably wasn't what they were wanting to achieve as atheist biology professors. So that kind of pushed me into thinking about how do I, as I came to accept the evidence revolution and, and start to realize how strong it is in various ways, that pushed me to grapple with how do I put these things together. So yeah, I've been thinking about those for the last 10 years and, and come to a position I guess we'll talk about that I think evolution was designed. So you've had a bit of an interesting sort of antagonistic journey with Darwinian evolution yourself. You sort of, in your own life, speak to the fact that Christians feel uncomfortable with it. Now, I know you've written a little bit about how the church throughout its history has had a relationship to evolution. Has that been the general trajectory of how the church has treated evolution as an antagonist? Yeah, I think it's super hard to generalize because it really depends where you are, what, what kind of educational background people have, whether they're how aware they are of science. I think the general tendency was that the more people were into science, the more sympathetic they were to evolution. That's my sense, at least kind of early on in the, the early response. There are a lot of people who were kind of actively engaged in the scientific discussion and Christians some of them had, had problems with, with evolution, but they were largely scientific. They thought it didn't achieve what it had set out to achieve. So, so there was still a lot of scientific questions that were being debated early on. But they were doing it in a way that a lot of kind of, I, I guess, leading Christian thinkers were doing this in a way that wasn't just completely rebutting evolution or completely denying it straight from the start, but instead kind of engaging with it really rigorously. That's what I guess I'd, I'd really like to see. And I think we've lost that to a large extent. Yeah, so I guess in my experience, a lot of Christians are either antagonistic towards evolution and sometimes have a fairly deep understanding, but usually have a fairly superficial understanding. And a lot of others are just completely apathetic about it and think it really doesn't matter. So they, they don't think it's something that's really worth investing time in because Christianity is about Jesus and okay, God created the world somehow, it really doesn't matter. Now, I think both of those are kind of mistakes, like either to be completely antagonistic and to not deny it has any legitimacy or to say it's completely irrelevant and why should Christians even talk about it? Because the doctrine of creation is really important. And I think for the doctrine of creation to be credible today, it's going to have to engage with what science is saying. And evolution is saying some stuff that on the face of it does pose a challenge for some kind of Christian conceptions of, of how God is created. So that's why it's important, I think, to engage with it rigorously. And some Christians have done that over the last uh, 150 or so years, and a lot of people haven't. So is a belief in evolution a denial of the Genesis text? Is it a denial of God's creative action? Uh, I think the short answer is, is no. 
And there's lots of ways to kind of unpack that. But a, a lot of people in Darwin's time didn't think it was. But th- there's, I guess, a lot of different strands to unpack there. I think a lot of people would assume that Christians in Darwin's time were basically all young earth creationists until Darwin came along and kind of refuted that. That's the way it was kind of presented in my introduction to biology lectures and, and that kind of thing. I think a lot of people have that vague understanding. But actually, before Darwin, people had already come to accept the Earth was very old, and there had been some kind of sequence of development of organisms. And so this is what was seen in the fossil record. And and Darwin was providing a really tidy and nice explanation of why that is. But there was already this, this thing. So the point being that actually a lot of the challenges that people would, a lot of Christians would kind of ascribe to evolution, are actually more about the age of the Earth or a general process of development. And these were things that were accepted before Darwin came along. Um, so someone like Charles Spurgeon, for instance, very conservative Baptist theologian, preacher, very famous, very beloved by a lot of young earth creationists. He accepted the old age of the earth and various things that went along with that. So, And this was before, uh, before Darwin. And there was a, a lot of people like that. So this was the status of kind of educated evangelicals in the years before Darwin. So I think that's one way of looking at it to show that Evolution per se doesn't look like historically it's been this big problem in that people had already come to grips with a lot of the fundamentals that we might ascribe to evolution before Darwin came along, um, the age of the earth and the kind of general pattern of development of, of species over time. Uh, evolution adds a couple of things into that, which we can talk about, but I think actually those are the, the, the two big things that people would associate with evolution. How we deal with it, I guess, comes down to how we're going to read Genesis. Yeah, you talked a bit about Spurgeon, and another person I know you've talked about is Asa Gray. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, so so you, Seth, might actually know more about the the history of that. I've I've tried I've read a little bit of his biography about him and, and such, and tried to look into him a little bit. But so he was an interesting person, a botanist at Harvard who started interacting with Darwin's ideas very very early on, and and had a substantive correspondence with Darwin. Uh, he was an evangelical, or at least a conservative Presbyterian theologically, and he was a big fan of Darwin. So he was one of Darwin's friends and the main kind of supporter of Darwin in the U.S. as a botanist, but at the same time also as a evangelical or or quite conservative Protestant. So I think a lot of things he said uh, right early on in responding to Darwin are still relevant, legitimate today. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot in those early years after Darwin that people have kind of forgotten about. And there was a lot of really constructive and rigorous engagement that I think is worth picking up. Um, some of that was Asa Gray, some of his thoughts. Maybe his main thought that's relevant here is that evolution could have been designed. And if evolution itself needs design, then we haven't got rid of the design that people believed in before Darwin came along. So, th- so this is kind of a big debate that was raised by, by Darwin, whether he had got rid of the need for a creator of biology. And the response of Asa Gray and a number of others was that uh, not necessarily uh, if evolution was the process that God used, and that process itself was designed. Could you maybe give us a, a sense of how you personally reconcile Genesis with evolution? How do you make those two work together in your understanding of the text? Yeah, so I, I think the main thing to deal with, as I've kind of hinted before, is how to fit like an old earth into the Genesis narrative. And the question that raises, um, because the Genesis narrative on kind of a face value reading seems to suggest that God made everything in in a literal uh, week, and it wasn't that long ago, it was a few thousand years ago, 
And then how can we fit this kind of massive history that geology and astronomy and some other scientists seem to be finding about the Earth and the universe? How can we fit that in, into the text of Genesis? And uh, there's different ways to do that. Of course, as you'll be familiar, many of the listeners will be familiar with the framework view, um, the idea that Genesis is kind of giving a non-chronological kind of thematic overview of the de development of life, but in, as I say, in a non-chronological way. There's some other allegorical or, or non-literal views as well. The view that I think is most persuasive is called the analogical days view. So this is um, advocated by C. John Collins, who's a biblical uh, scholar in, in the States. So this is the idea that basically that Genesis is kind of analogical language about God's creation using kind of a concept that the Hebrews would be familiar with, which is a workman going about his day. And the way that creation was achieved can be kind of seen as analogous to an ordinary Hebrew workman going about a one week a process, uh, perhaps of building a temple, or is another kind of aspect that seems to be kind of hinted at in the text. Why would we think that? There's various things in the text that suggest this is not just a straightforward literal uh, account. One of them is what the framework view picks up on, the idea that there is this kind of um, thematic ordering, that the first three days are kind of creating realms or areas uh, of the world or kind of big aspects of the world, and the next three days are filling it, and that there's kind of pairing between those two sets of three. That's one aspect. There's also other aspects of the text that don't seem to be straightforwardly literal, such as the uh, sun being made on day four, but the concept of a day corresponding to, in, in ordinary language, corresponding to the Earth's relationship to the sun. Yeah, so there's various aspects of the text that say this is not just straightforwardly literal, and this was picked up uh, early in church history as well. And I, the best way that I, the specific kind of approach that I find most useful in kind of fleshing out how to think about how Genesis is going about teaching about creation is called the analogical days view. And yeah, for a better description, people can look up the work of C. John Collins. So it's sounding like that it is completely possible to reconcile a pretty strong view of scripture and evolutionary theory. But I get a sense that a lot of people might still be resistant to that because it's seen as a sort of concession still. We're still conceding some territory to atheism, even if we can sort of jam these two together. Well, some of your recent work has been to undermine that assumption and show that evolution might actually suggest some design. Can you give us a bit of an overview of that? Yeah, I think there's so much kind of useful background here that a lot of people don't have that makes the conversation difficult sometimes. One of the main things that I find most helpful is just thinking about what science is itself and think about whether science itself is atheistic. In other words, if you give a scientific explanation of something, have you given an atheistic explanation of it? Um, have you got rid of the need for God by giving the scientific explanation? And I just don't think that is the case. One of the main reasons for that is to give a scientific explanation in kind of the archetypical way is to give an explanation in terms of laws of nature. And I think the best account of laws of nature is that they're somehow related to God's commands. And this was the historic view that the, the early scientists believed. So, so I think when we talk about laws of nature, we're really talking about some way that God is ordering the universe, is, is ruling the universe. And so I think laws of nature are not a naturalistic kind of concept. And therefore, explaining things in terms of laws of nature is not inherently atheistic or naturalistic, and therefore science is not inherently atheistic. So that's the broad picture that I, I think is useful. And then there's just a subset of that that we're dealing with is, okay, what about biology? And I think basically the, the, the same thing holds. So 
one thing I find interesting is people will accept this quite quickly in the realm of physics. It's reasonably uncontroversial that the solar system has kind of evolved. And I'm not an astronomer, so I can't tell you the details of that, but broadly some kind of nebula hypothesis that the solar system has kind of coalesced over, over many millions of years through various physical processes. And we can model that and we can give, it, give an account of how we think that happened, the same with the formation of galaxies, stars, these kinds of things. And these are not that controversial among Christians, at least in my experience. Some kind of maybe old earth creationism, or even actually a lot of varieties of young earth creationism have cosmologies where this stuff happens naturally. So the point being that it's fine for a lot of Christians for God to uh, create by laws of nature. I think the same principle applies in biology. It's at least conceivable that God has created through things that we would say are natural, but I would say are not naturalistic, that is laws of nature. And the specific details of that is this is the field that we call biology. In the same way that the specific details of how God has created the solar system or the galaxies uh, is called astronomy. So in, in principle, I, I don't see a problem with a law-like process. How can we still have design, though? That's one of the remaining questions. We might think, okay, it's possible, you know, there's compatibility that God could use a law-like process. That's okay. But haven't we got rid of the need for design by saying God used a law-like process? Well, again, people don't say that in physics because these physical laws look like they were designed. And this is actually, a lot of atheists find this one of the strongest reasons to believe in God. So people, I think both uh, Richard Dawkins and uh, the late Christopher Hitchens said that the argument they find most troubling for God is the fine-tuning argument, that the laws of nature are basically set up very precisely uh, in order to allow life to, to exist, for there to be a life-permitting universe. So what I want to say in biology is something analogous, that, okay, the physicists have a law-like creation, and God is behind those laws, and he set them up precisely. Potentially, it's the same in biology, that we have a law-like creation. Uh, there are various somewhat understandable, predictable, law-like processes uh, in biology. We call these things like natural selection and, and other aspects of evolution. Potentially, God is behind that, and potentially also God has designed those laws, and similar to the way he's designed physical laws. There's all kinds of interesting philosophical questions there of how you, how you spell that out. But basically, I think the same principle kind of applies, that it's at least plausible that God could have set up the fundamental evolution processes in a way analogous to how he has set up the fundamental physical laws and initial conditions, uh, which is the subject of cosmological fine-tuning. Yeah, so there's lots more to say, but that's, that's kind of an introduction. It's interesting that you said one of the sort of law-like systems God could have set up might be natural selection itself. I tend to think of natural selection as a sort of cruel mistress who progresses the species through death and extinction. Is that a way that most people would want to see God as being involved in the universe through a law that is harsh like that? Yes, I, I think natural selection is often misunderstood. Firstly, it's not the only thing that's driving evolution, and maybe it's not even the main thing. There's, there's lots of debates about that. But I'll set that aside for a, a second. It's like, okay, let's say evolution is mostly about natural selection. Technically speaking, natural selection doesn't really require death. Natural selection just requires differential reproduction, and that the traits that are differentially reproduced are inherited. Because evolution by natural selection is just the change of frequency of traits over time, inherited traits over time. You actually don't need any death in that situation to get natural selection. So in our world, we do have death, but death is not actually like, at least as I see it, death is not really the main driver of, of natural selection. It's more about differential reproduction. Death is part of it, but the nature of death, the cruelty of death, that's kind of a separate issue. And that's something that I think all Christians and all worldviews face and need to have some kind of account of. 
but I don't think natural selection adds that much into the system. I think a lot of people confuse natural selection with what I mentioned before, like the age of the earth. And because as soon as you have an old earth, you do have this fossil record with a lot of apparent suffering in history, but that's a different issue to the specific mechanism of natural selection, which as I see is, is largely about differential reproduction. And on the other hand, is not uh, the only driver of evolution. There's all kinds of other factors that are kind of being explored uh, nowadays with the extended evolutionary synthesis. I'm particularly interested in the kind of the mutation side of the equation. So the classic neo-Darwinian evolution is kind of random mutation plus natural selection. Uh, it's turning out mutations are not really random. They have other interesting properties. And that's one of the other kind of factors which is driving where evolution goes. That's kind of a grab bag of responses to the natural selection kind of issue. If I can jump back a little bit to you talking about the possibility of there being an analogous form of design in biological evolution as there is yeah. to that cosmic fine tuning that gives Richard Dawkins so much trouble and keeps him up at night. Yeah. What do you mean by that? That seems completely novel. Yes, yeah, so like most good ideas, it's not really completely novel. So it is an idea that in some form was held by people like Asa Gray, who we mentioned before. He used the various nice analogies. One of them was like a, a weaver who hand weaves cloth. And uh, if you see that cloth and you don't know where it came from, you would recognize it came by design. And in this case, it did because the, the weaver kind of made it by hand. But in Asa Gray's day, or maybe a little bit before, kind of the height of technology was kind of new mechanical looms that can weave cloth without people moving the needles by hand directly. And if you look at that cloth, it would look designed. Uh, just as much as the handwoven cloth, and it would be designed. He actually, I think, says even more so than the handwoven cloth would be. Um, so the point there being that this might seem a strange thing. Where's he going with this? That the point being that a mechanical kind of process can be designed and can still provide evidence of design. So the product of a mechanical process, like a factory or a loom, a mechanical loom, can just as much, or maybe even more so, give uh, the sense of design. So someone who uh, was transported in time from 500 years before, would be massively impressed with these massive uh, mechanical looms and would see them as even more a sign of design than the kind of old lady or old man kind of weaving with the cloth by hand. Because the, the number of things that need to go into the process to make it mechanized or automated in some way is, is massively more complex, requires massively more design. At least by analogy, it's, 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 I think uh, you can conceive of how evolution could be similar. Evolution is this kind of automated process, this kind of natural system, natural in the sense of uh, law-like, law-like, of course, reflecting God's ordering of the universe. So biological evolution is this natural system, but just by virtue of being mechanized or, or natural or automated doesn't mean it's not designed. The inference is from the thing that the system creates, whether the loom creates some nice cloth that looks like it's designed. Biology, according to Richard Dawkins and many other people, looks like it's designed. So the challenge for the atheist, I think, is to debunk that inference. It's not clear that evolution kind of does that debunking, that providing an automated process per se removes the need for design, because it doesn't remove the need for design in the case of the automated cloth factory or loom. And I think it also doesn't get rid of the need for design, or at least it's, it's complicated in the case of biology, because when we go to the fundamentals of biology, we end up with some things like, I would say the genetic code, that seems relatively fundamental, things like the fitness landscape, the path that evolution takes, and the different possibilities it could take. To me, this looks like it might have been set up quite nicely. I think it's quite surprising, and a lot of biologists, I'm sure, would say the same. It's not at all a given that if you start with a bacterial cell, 
4 billion years ago, you would end up with a whole variety of things that we see around us in just 4 billion years, including the human brain, the most complicated thing in the universe. So yeah, biology creates these amazing things that everyone acknowledges are amazing. And it does so by an automated process, but at least potentially that process needs to be set up quite nicely in order to produce these amazing things. And if that's true, then I think we can make a similar kind of inference as we do uh, with the fine tuning. And there's still some need for some kind of, at least hints towards some kind of uh, nice setup of the process. Can we dive into that fitness landscape thing? Because that's really yeah. fascinating to me. Sure. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about what is a fitness landscape for someone who's not familiar and why does it look so set up? This is pretty difficult to talk about because it's, it's quite a conceptual thing and it's not like a protein or a bit of DNA. Like that's pretty straightforward. Like it's a collection of, of molecules and atoms that you can kind of draw a picture of it and see what it is. Whereas a fitness landscape is this crazy multi-dimensional thing. So what is the fitness landscape? It's, it's the relationship between genetic changes that can happen in an organism or population and the fitness effect, uh, meaning basically how well the organism will survive and reproduce downstream of those genetic changes. So we have genomes, billions of bits of single letters of, of DNA, and these can change in many different ways. And those changes can have different effects. And some of those effects are going to change fitness. So the fitness landscape is this huge possibility space of the different ways that genetic changes can affect kind of survivability and, and, and reproduction um, for the population. So this is this huge kind of impossible to imagine multidimensional space. And evolution is basically kind of a journey through that space. And the thing that I find interesting to ask is why is it that 4 billion years ago, we had just bacteria or, or something kind of like bacteria, some kind of single celled thing right at the beginning of life. And now we have many interesting, complicated things, including the human brain and all kinds of other stuff. Why is it that there was such a pathway, given that most evolutionary trajectories are going to end in dead ends or not going to end in the kind of interesting functional complexity that we see? I think it's we can fully imagine that Earth had started with single-celled bacteria 4 billion years ago, and today there was also just single-celled bacteria. There's all kinds of kind of interesting, complex processes that ha had to happen along the way. And if you're a kind of strict neo-Darwinian evolutionary biologist, like someone like Richard Dawkins, you're going to say, well, it was natural selection that did it. And when he says that, or when someone says that, they're basically saying it's the fitness landscape. They're saying that there was this evolutionary pathway, what Dawkins in one of his books called Climbing Mountain Probable, that there was this kind of smooth slope of individual steps which allow evolution to proceed. And the question that I'm asking is, why is that the case? Did that really need to be the case? There's some arguments from computer scientists, uh, computer science and, and mathematics and related areas that suggest, at least in our simulations of this kind of process, it doesn't need to be the case. Uh, you, it's very easy to set up an evolutionary simulation that does nothing interesting. The, these ones don't get published because they don't do anything interesting. But the ones that do get published, the ones that do something interesting, and they need to be set up really precisely. And there seem to be some general principles about this, that in order to get an interesting functional complexity at the end, there's only a, a small subset of the total possible number of fitness landscapes that will get you there. So this is quite a complicated argument. I'm not sure how to simplify it. But it's basically that in order for this smooth pathway to exist, it raises the question of why does this particular pathway exist, given that instead there could have just been a bunch of evolutionary dead ends. So in essence, you and others are working to show that evolution is not an alternative to design arguments, but might actually be sort of the ultimate design argument, or at least better than the traditional design arguments that we've previously talked about. 
How has that kind of argument been received so far? Yeah, so I, I try to be really cautious about this because I, I don't want to lose my job. And th- there's a lot of open questions here. But I'm interested in why are the fundamentals of evolution the way that they are? And I think, I, I think basically most biologists haven't thought about that. Uh, people like Richard Dawkins even, who, who is actually interested in these kind of deep questions, but hasn't kind of gone that step to ask. So because he thinks that once you've given a natural explanation of something, that's the end of the story. But I think the fine-tuning case at least gives us the possibility that we can raise further questions. The fact that you've explained something in terms of laws of nature or things that seem quite fundamental doesn't mean that there's nothing left to be explained. There might be nothing left to be explained scientifically, but that doesn't mean there's nothing left to be explained. And that's kind of the, the gap or the kind of junction that I want to point to. And that's why most biologists haven't thought about this, because their job as biologists is to explain things scientifically. And the kind of argument I'm trying to offer is not going against that. It's actually saying, give me all the scientific explanations you can, and that's great, and I, I want to run with those. Given those explanations, then what is left is kind of fundamental in those explanations. What, do we, what is the fundamental shape of evolutionary theory? And my suspicion is that whatever that is, it's going to need to be set up quite precisely. So all, all that is to say that biologists don't actually have too much to say to this argument other than helping to flesh out what these fundamentals are. But the argument itself, I want to frame it as more of a philosophical inference from what biology seems to be telling us. So it's kind of like the atheist is saying, we don't need to put God in there to explain planetary formation because gravity explains it. Then you're saying, okay, yes, from the scientific angle, gravity does explain it, but who explains gravity? Why do we have these precisely tuned things like the gravitational force and law and all of this stuff? And you're, you're making an equivalent argument in biology. Exactly, yes. It's going to be controversial like whether there are these fundamental things, what we're talking about, what could be fundamental in biology. One thing that most biologists would accept as fundamental is like whatever the origin of life was. So let's say the, the first replicator, if you go with something like an RNA world theory or something, whatever that first thing was, it seems to me uh, that and th- there's arguments for this and, and work by people like Simon Connery Morris that suggests the stuff that was really early on in evolution ended up being really useful later on in a way that I think is surprising and kind of hints that the early stuff might have been set up quite nicely. That's the kind of thing that I'm thinking about, which is initial conditions, but I'm also thinking about the overall framework, things like the fitness landscape, that I think are kind of a given for biology. Biologists don't ask us, why is there this fitness landscape? They just ask, what is the fitness landscape? Which is a good question, but it's a different question from the one I want to ask, which is, okay, given that there is this fitness landscape, why is there this one rather than all the other ones that don't work so nicely? Biologists have have a lot to say in the details, but in terms of the inference, it's going to be a philosophical one. Thomas Nagel actually has a really good analogy. He says, you know, I can tell you completely from a physical basis why with my calculator, if I hit the five, the plus and the three, why that ends up with a unit eight on there. But unless you understand the purpose, the goal, why that is, it becomes completely inexplicable why it is an eight that shows up there and not a nine or a ten. There's got to be a higher order explanation above the physical. And if you just go at the physical, you've left out something in a complete explanation. And I thought that was a real helpful analogy. Yeah, and, and a lot of atheist scientists might not be interested in that kind of complete explanation. But I think it gets interesting when people like Richard Dawkins say bluntly that biology is special and needs some kind of explanation. And they, th- they think they've given this explanation, but if it turns out they haven't given a full explanation, 
then the, the question that they wanted to address kind of still remains open. And they kind of see that in the, something like that in the case of fine tuning. They, that's why they realize it is a problem because it is addressing kind of exactly the question they kind of want to answer. And, and they realize that there's kind of a, a, a problem there in current kind of naturalistic conceptions. And I, I think there's something analogous happening in, in biology because it's not just that there's a need for a complete explanation in, in general, though that's part of it, but it's also that the products of this process do look special. They do look like they need some the natural response of different cultures across many centuries and millennia has been to infer design. And it's not clear that evolution has got rid of that need for kind of this kind of ultimate teleological explanation. So there's an obvious parallel here in one sense to intelligent design and the intelligent design movement. And yet, at the same time, you seem to be doing something that's radically different from what the intelligent design movement is doing. Could you maybe give us your current thoughts on the intelligent design movement and how what you're doing relates to or contrasts that? Yeah, so this is a potentially uh, controversial area. I think more controversial in the US, where it's a, maybe a little bit, well, historically been a bit more of a live issue. I guess I'll just say a, a few things and probably won't directly answer the question, but hopefully what I say is, is interesting. One of the main things I want to say is that the idea of intelligent design is really broad, and so is the intelligent design movement, maybe surprisingly broad. So it, actually, it's very hard to give kind of a half a sentence response to the intelligent design movement, if you want to do that kind of rigorously and fairly, given that it is really so broad and surprisingly broad. Actually, it's so broad, it loses some of its coherency, I would say. And it's because people, some of the main thinkers within intelligent design disagree on kind of things that I would say are really fundamental. Not all of them believe in God, for instance. Someone like Michael Denton might be some kind of a deist or some kind of non-standard concept of design. There's also other fundamental kind of disagreements within the intelligent design movement. Most of them are what I would call functionalists. So they're trying to explain adaptation. This is the same as both William Paley and someone like Richard Dawkins. They're really focused on why are biological organisms so beautifully adapted to their niches, that kind of question. But some intelligent design people are not functionalists, they're structuralists. And the kind of thing that they're focusing on is something different. It's like, what is something like, what is the broad pattern of evolution? And what are the broad laws of evolution? That's my kind of quick attempt to, to summarize the difference there. But they're asking quite different questions. They're focusing on quite different aspects of biology. Maybe there's some way to combine those two things together, but it hasn't been done yet to my, to my knowledge. People are approaching these things from quite different questions. Some of them accept common descent, some of them don't. Uh, some of them are young earth creationists, some are old earth creationists. Some are very similar to theistic evolution just with a different name. Some are deists or have some other concept. So yeah, that, so that's why I can't give kind of a blanket judgment. As an evangelical Christian who accepts evolution, I can't give a blanket judgment on intelligent design because it's such a broad spectrum. I can disagree with various claims that they make, of course. And so I, I'm not here to defend, I think, any of their claims necessarily. So that's on the negative side, or at least potentially negative. On the positive side, I think they do raise interesting questions and they don't necessarily get enough credit for that. But I understand why they don't get credit for it, because I think they go about it in a way which doesn't make sense to evolution biologists. Because most of the intelligent design movement, I would say, is basically anti-evolutionary. It says in order to have design, you need to reject evolution. You need to show why Darwin was wrong. And of course, given what I've said the last few minutes, I disagree with that approach. But the questions they raise in evolution, I think, do get to some of the fundamental issues that I'm interested in. Like, why does evolution work? Why do we have novelty in evolution? How do we get complex structures? All kinds of questions. They are raising some fundamental evolution issues. I think 
they're just much too quick to reject evolution as a result. Whereas I think instead what the more interesting stuff they're coming up with is instead hinting towards is some need for something like teleology or some hint towards that rather than just a blanket rejection of evolution. So thank you so much. Maybe as just a final parting question, I'm sure a lot of listeners, their curiosity has been piqued and we've had to give a far too broad overview of some of these arguments. What are some resources you'd recommend for people who are struggling with evolution or wanting to know more about the evolution and design conversation? Yeah, so um, there's a guy called Seth Hart uh, you may have heard of. He's written some stuff <laughs> on capturing Christianity. So I quite like his essays. They're not like perfect, but they're, they're quite good. So that's on the kind of historical stuff. So some of that stuff that I've mentioned, he touches on that. I, I think he's written quite a bit about teleology and stuff as well. So those, those are quite nice essays. I've written some essays there as well at, at capturing Christianity. So that's kind of for like short essay stuff. Um, if you want a really long in-depth conversation on the topic, then um, I did a couple of podcasts, YouTube interviews on capturing Christianity with my friend Arope Kuyonen, who's a Finnish theologian who's written a, a couple of books on related topics. Yeah, you can listen to those conversations or see some of my articles, see, see Seth's articles, or you can, if you're really keen, you can go and get those books for a really in-depth uh, look at it. The first one I think is called Intelligent Design and the Temptation of Scientism. And this is exploring some of these kind of broader issues that I touched on, like how does science work? What is it? What's a good scientific argument? How does that fit with an intelligent design, theistic evolution, that kind of stuff. And the second one is, I'm going to get it wrong, I think it's com the compatibility of Darwin and design. And this is exploring more of the kind of biology specific stuff how you can still make a design argument, even accepting kind of mainstream evolutionary theory. Yeah, so those are some resources that I'd recommend. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Ardern. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks. Great to be with you guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. This was part two of our origin series. Be sure to check out our first episode on creationism and Marcus Ross. Future episodes will include An Old Earth Perspective with Dr. Andrew Loke and Intelligent Design with Dr. Stephen Meyer. Also be sure to check out our Patreon. We have an exclusive discussion between Jonathan and I afterward, both for this episode and for every episode within our origin series. Those perks are just one of the many that we have. You can suggest a topic, interview John and I, and even come on the podcast to talk to our guests. We even have unreleased episodes that will never be heard except by you, our Patreon subscribers, such as one just released on the Supreme Court and abortion. All this and many, many other bonuses can be found at our website, spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com. Sound effects from zatsplat.com. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube or Spotify.